You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Middle-income families need help. Uh, we're coming out of COVID-19. We want to keep our economy strong. When you have an infrastructure bill, there's spin-offs of that. There's spin-offs in cities and towns all across America. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We need to incentivize the manufacturing of chips in America. I do believe the vaccine is safe and effective. But I think what government's role is is to share the science, share the facts share the benefits. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, they're clearing out of town today for one of the final weekends of summer already, at least in Washington speak, but we are firmly planted in the nation's capital at Bloomberg Radio where the news keeps flowing. A federal judge keeping the federal eviction moratorium alive today in denying a request from landlords to stop President Biden's recent extension. We're going to talk about that and the way forward on the Democrats' economic agenda coming up with Congressman Don Beyer of Virginia. We'll talk about the timeline as well with Bloomberg government's Emily Wilkins and Jack Fitzpatrick. It is Friday, our reporters' roundtable, and later a special conversation about presidential vacations and the August curse with political optics expert, former White House official Adam Belmar. It's all ahead this hour. Today on Bloomberg Sound On, welcome to Friday. Thanks for being with us on the program. Just a week ago, it was still unclear if extending the federal moratorium on evictions would hold up in court. I can't guarantee you the court won't rule that we don't have that authority. But at least we'll have the ability to, if we have to appeal, to keep this going for a month. At least, I hope longer. President Biden on the South Lawn just last week after he chose to extend the CDC's moratorium in the face of great pressure from progressives in his own party. And today, U.S. District Judge denying a request from landlords to end the ban. We got a ruling today. She said she did not have the authority to strike this down because the moratorium is subject to an appeals court ruling. It doesn't mean this is over. And we're joined right now to talk about this, among many other issues, by Congressman Don Beyer, Democrat from Virginia. Welcome back, Congressman. Could this go all the way back to the Supreme Court, the eviction moratorium? Yes, it could. And I, I think the Biden administration's deep hope is that this will at least buy us some more time. As you know well, we, we, we actually appropriated $47 billion to help pay these rents. And only $3 billion had actually made it through the hands of, of renters and into the hands of landlords. So we really need state and local governments to do a much, much better job getting the money out so we don't need a moratorium. 
Well, so maybe this serves its purpose then. Even if it is eventually struck down, the whole idea, Congressman, was to buy time, right, and get some more of those dollars out on the state level. Exactly right. We're looking at like a million evictions in the next three weeks, and that just was just too much human pain to bear. So I'm hoping, yeah, you know, regardless of what happens at the Supreme Court, court level, we should be in much better position in a couple of weeks. Congressman, you mentioned a million people. Who are these people? And I ask you that because we hear about a lot of numbers on this. Who is about to be evicted? You know, it's probably a mix. On the one hand, it's folks who have not been able to go back to work, either because they're afraid of the virus or they're not vaccinated or they have kids at home that haven't gone back to school. Um, You know, yet uh, an all-time record number of job openings, more than 10 million. So unless there's some other reason to keep people out of the job market, you would hope that most people would be able to pay rent. But but then again, one of the conflicting factors is that um, most of those jobs are in in really fast growth areas, you know, um, big cities and urban suburban areas. Mm-hmm. And if you're in a in rural someplace and the jobs aren't there and you don't have a job and you can't move and no one's going to buy your house, it becomes or, or take over your rent. It becomes a lot harder. We're talking with Congressman Don Beyer of Virginia, Democrat, with us to kick things off on this Friday and breaking news earlier today on the eviction moratorium. It appears the president made the right choice because this would have been otherwise, Congressman, this would have expired by now, right? It would have, yeah, just just at the, at the end of the month. So, And there was not another yeah, option it, it in Congress to keep it going. No, well, we... we we tried, but we couldn't get 218 votes in the House, and we saw no way to get 60 votes in the Senate. So it really was dependent on the president. You've been talking and, about and, jobs and, today. And, Go ahead, finish. Yeah, excuse me. Well, it just the notion was, hey, we put the we did our job. We put the 47 billion out there. Please spend it. Uh, you know, helping the landlords you know, be made whole, and then they can make their mortgage payments. Message to the states from Congress from Buyer: Please spend the money we sent you. In terms of jobs. Exactly. And you're pointing out, uh, you know, we've actually had some pretty good data lately, stronger than expected reports on job creation. Certainly that July number was impressive. That has been the motivation or the argument, if you will, to spend trillions on infrastructure and uh, then this this looming package, the reconciliation package with, with the human infrastructure. Are we still going to need all of that money to create job growth after September when, when more people start coming back? You know, one of the things that we complained about, both sides, through the decade of the teens, was that, you know, we had, you know, what, 100 months in a row where jobs were created, but we were poking along between 1% and 2% in job growth or in economic growth, GDP. And we're trying to say, what's going to create a much stronger 2020s and 2030s? And we, we believe that, yeah, the first part is roads and bridges and in, in broadband and, and electrical grids. But the second critical part is the investment in human capital. Those 10 million jobs I, I talked about, um, you know, most of them uh, require more than a high school education. They require people with uh, at least some uh, higher level education, community college, four-year college. We've got to be investing in the people to, to make this economy really rock and roll. We also need to bring a lot more people back into the workforce, especially women. And when we look at paid sick leave and paid family medical leave, these are the big things that will bring women back into the workforce. 
Well, Congressman, there are questions uh, about the path here to, to getting that money. As I read on the Bloomberg Terminal, that, that Nancy Pelosi is facing a bit of a revolt from moderates. You know about this letter. You've probably seen it. Nine moderates, House Democrats threatening to not support the, the budget resolution if they don't get a vote first on bipartisan infrastructure. Then to the left, you've got progressives saying, nope, well, we're not going to vote for that Senate infrastructure plan unless we get reconciliation first. What's a guy <laughs> like you do in the middle here, and how's this going to work out? Well, my, my, my father, who was an old NASCAR racer, told me never to play chicken. It was not a smart game. <laughs> and That's hoping, what we're doing. Yeah, yeah it, that reminds me of that. But, but the good news is that um, we've had lots of, you know, reasonable minor policy debates between our progressive strong flank and our and our blue dogs or more moderate ones. And but we always come together. And everybody across the board, um, all 223 Democrats in the House want both bills to pass. So it's really just a matter of timing and of people feeling secure that if we pass the infrastructure bill, we really are going to come back and do the by reconciliation only investment in human capital, the, the, the Biden American Families Plan. So is this um, just a lot of bluster? And, and, and what would a couple of weeks well, make in difference at this point? It's been years. Yeah, a long time. I mean, part of it's timing. You know, just because we got the, the, the Senate budget resolution that sets up this American Family Plan, well, we'll vote on that, and that'll be an easy vote to pass uh, week after next. Um, but to get all the details of how you actually spend $3.5 trillion constructively, that could take weeks or maybe even months. Hmm. And um, we, we don't want to wait months, I don't think, to, to vote on Joe Biden's infrastructure bill. That's a big win for the American people, and we should get that moving right away. So hmm. I'm, I'm pretty confident. You know, that a lot of this is normal political posturing. Um, but I'm, I'm confident these are all really good people of good faith. We'll come together and get something worked out, I'm, sh- I'm sure, next week. Your optimism uh, is uh, is encouraging, uh, even though your August recess has been truncated, Congressman. I'm wondering what you're doing to spend, what do you get, a week and a half this time? Tell us about the work behind, assuming you're not at the pool all week, the work behind the scenes, if there is any going on. Are you in touch with your colleagues on infrastructure, on the budget and other issues? Y- yeah, I've t- talked to a bunch in the last couple of days, and I think, yeah, everybody's, at least on the House side, there were many of us that were skeptical that the Senate was actually going to be able to get this done. And uh, I was skeptical, um, but they did. And, and uh, we're, we're celebrating that. It'll be really fun. I, hopefully that will be a big bipartisan vote in the House, too, just as it was in the Senate. And it will be, you know, it's, it's great. Uh, yeah, I'm in one of the least respected professions in America right now to be able to say, look, we, we just did more than a trillion dollars in, in infrastructure, and we put it on the president's desk. And we did this, Democrats and Republicans, together. That, that's a big win. And, that, and then it'll be then fun to go forward and say, and we're also going to really invest in the American people with the American Family Plan. Well, let's see if this gets to his desk, right? We've got a couple of things uh, to go through before it gets that far. How many changes in our remaining moment, Congressman, do you think the House will make to the bipartisan infrastructure, the hard infrastructure bill? Do you need more money for water, or are there other issues that you might see get tweaked here in the House? I think the tweaks will be minimal, if any. Um, Obviously, many of the House leaders, especially Peter DeFazio, who chairs infrastructure in the House, you know, not happy that the many... Um, climate change policy things that we wrote into the House bill. They're not in the Senate bipartisan bill. It's going to be tough to put them in and expect 
to keep all those Republican senators that we needed to get it passed there. So my, you know, my expectation is that we're going to take, take it pretty much as is. I, I certainly don't think we're going to put any poison pills in there that yeah. would hurt it if it had to go back to the Senate. There you have it from Congressman Don Beyer, Democrat from Virginia. Appreciate you taking time out of your August recess late on a Friday and being with us, sir. We'll connect when you come back to the Capitol. Coming up, our Friday Reporters Roundtable. We'll talk about all this with Bloomberg Government's Emily Wilkins and Jack Fitzpatrick. They're next on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Eviction ban survives landlords challenge the Bloomberg headline today. And that was in doubt until this afternoon. As we kick off our Friday Reporters Roundtable now with Bloomberg Government's Emily Wilkins and Jack Fitzpatrick. They join us each week at this time on Sound On before they head to free taco night at the National Press Club, right? That's that's the way this works. <laughs> um, just just hold your appetite, guys. It's great to have you here. You know, that's a whole scene on Friday still, right? Free taco night? That's oh, still yeah. a thing? Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah. All you can eat. All you see? Beautiful. Uh, right. Beautiful. Great it's all coming back now. It's all coming back to me. Emily, good to see you. Jack, you too. This eviction ban uh, was a big controversy a couple of weeks ago. Jack, you probably walked by Corey Bush and others who were sleeping right. on the steps of the house uh, to make a point on this, a, a sit-in, essentially, to pressure the White House or the leadership in the House, for that matter, Nancy Pelosi, to extend this ban that was set to expire at the end of July. So it looks like, Jack, Democrats got what they want. Is there a congressional solution for this, though? Because it could still be struck down in court. Well, I think the congressman kind of hit the nail on the head earlier in your interview with him, uh, saying that Congress, to an extent, has already done its job. They put out $46.5 billion, yes. I think. $3 billion has actually been spent. A lot of the issue here is with state and local governments and why that's been held up. Um, Democrats can only be so happy about this, the Democrats who really pushed for this, because this is only the U.S. district judge, and it raises questions about what's going to happen at the next level if it goes back to the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. it's pretty clear that there's some uh, reticence there in terms of allowing the executive branch to just extend this on its own. So it's you know, it's good news for a lot of people for now, but Congress has kind of done as much as it can in a sense, or is, as much as it's going to, uh, and it's it, things are, are looking a, a little iffy in the next rounds of what the courts are going to do. Well, that's true. And if it goes back to the Supreme Court, we know that Justice Kavanaugh is waiting for it. He already struck this thing down. That's how we got here. Emily, is there anything that lawmakers can do instead of yell at the states to actually get the money out the door? Or is it really out of Washington's hands at that point? I mean, no, it, it could absolutely be in Congress's hands to extend this eviction moratorium. It's something they have the power to do. Do they have the votes to do it? No, they don't. Mm -hmm. They don't even have the votes to get it through the Democrat-backed House. They don't even have all Democrats on board with extending the eviction moratorium. Now, maybe behind the scene, you know, Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, they go, they twist some arms, they cut some deals, they get people on board for it. You still have a really high bar to clear in the Senate. And let's be frank, you look at what the House's agenda is when this eviction moratorium expires, mm -hmm. they have a ton of other stuff that they need to get to. They already have a packed schedule. And, and to add this in, I, I think it's going to be something where, where Democrats are really hoping 
hoping that that more of that $46 billion is distributed because I don't think to a certain extent they have the bandwidth to try and deal with this in Congress. Can they inspire states, though? I guess that's the real question because we've heard Democrats and Republicans, to your point, say, no, we already allocated the money. How do you get governors to act is the question then. I think part of it is just bureaucracy, right? That it has to go to the states. The states have to figure out how to get it to the right people, how to set up the programs, how to set up the applications. Some states, Bloomberg reported on this, some states have done a great job in starting to get out money and locate people. And some people, uh, when this became, when the eviction moratorium was up at the end of July, they hadn't given out any money yet at all. And I think this is really a matter, if you want to know the story of why the money's not out there, there are 50 different stories in every different state and localities. And I think it's just a thing where it, it takes time. It really does take time for money to go from the federal level all the way down to the renters and landlords who need it. I wonder if this should have been written differently, Jack Fitzpatrick, but this really was an issue that got under uh, progressives' craw, right? This was this was a problem. They were they were talking about Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi being late to the party and essentially turning their backs on vulnerable families who needed Washington's help most. That's not a great backdrop to start this huge debate over reconciliation and infrastructure, is it? Right. There's there's a lot of tension right now between the progressives and the moderates and some frustration between progressives and leadership. You know, a couple weeks ago, there was this sense that it, it almost seemed like they were going to allow the eviction moratorium just to expire before progressives, especially Cori Bush, really started pushing at least for this uh, temporary extension. Now there's all sorts of debates. It, it, theoretically, they could address this through a reconciliation bill if people aren't already evicted uh, before that bill becomes law. They could add more money. They could uh, add measures to make grants contingent on the disbursement of this funds to try to yes. motivate states. That's but that, that takes time. That takes time. And, you know, it's difficult to get this reconciliation bill through. They, they're going to have to wrangle the votes. We don't know exactly how quickly they can do it. They say they want to get the bill together by September 15th. That's very, very fast. The eviction issue is a much more fast-paced issue than anything they could address through the reconciliation process. That's a slower process. The room in there for that, Emily? I mean, I think one of the interesting things that, that we saw with the eviction moratorium battle is we saw how much progressives are willing to dig in their heels. I mean, this was led by Cori Bush, yeah. who was not here last Congress. She's a new That's newer right. member of the squad. Her and Jamal Bowman, they've been very vocal. They've been willing to go against leadership. And so I think to a certain extent, when you see progressives dig in their heels as they are right now and say, we're not voting on infrastructure until the Senate gets us that reconciliation bill, the one that hasn't even been written yet, they're digging in their heels. They've already shown that they have the political force to follow through on things like they did with the eviction moratorium. And I think it lends them a little bit more credibility in moments like this where they have stood up and said, hey, we will not do this. This is our line in the sand. We're spending a Friday with Jack and Emily, our reporters roundtable. And coming up, we'll look at what could happen with infrastructure. We'll keep following this ball and the budget as Nancy Pelosi faces a revolt from moderates. They sent her another letter. We'll talk <laughs> about it next. Stay with us on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. 
And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1. To New York, Bloomberg 1130. To San Francisco, Bloomberg 960. To the country, Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. Headline on the terminal, Pelosi faces revolt from moderates that risks budget vote plan. Bloomberg government's Emily Wilkins shares the byline and we'll talk with her. And political contributor Jack Fitzpatrick coming up as we continue our Friday Reporters Roundtable on Bloomberg Sound On. The math is getting more challenging for Nancy Pelosi. And it was already pretty tough with such a slim majority in the House. And as we've seen play out on this program the past couple of weeks, moderates and progressives in the Democratic Party do not agree on everything. In fact, as we read on the terminal here, nine moderate House Democrats threatening now to withhold support from the budget resolution, the three and a half trillion dollar plan until a bipartisan infrastructure package is signed into law. This is getting a little more difficult for the leadership. Of course, progressives, by the way, say, fine then, we won't vote for the infrastructure bill. And we're joined by Bloomberg government's Emily Wilkins and Jack Fitzpatrick, our reporters roundtable. Emily, I'll start with you as you share the byline on this story. Nine moderate House Democrats, they sent a letter to Nancy Pelosi, not just urging her to move up the infrastructure vote, but in fact threatening, as we heard earlier this week from Congressman Gottheimer on this program, threatening not to vote for the reconciliation plan and blow this whole thing up. Right. This is really a step up from what the rhetoric was earlier in the week. And I'm going to get a little bit wonky here right now. I love that. So what we've got coming up, August 23rd, August 24th, we're going to have a vote on the budget resolution. Now, that is the blueprint for reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Got to move the resolution and then you get to reconciliation. So we've heard progressives say, hey, we need that final end product, that reconciliation. That's what we need to vote on infrastructure in the House. Mm -hmm. And because Nancy Pelosi has said, fine, you got it. She has stuck to that position all week. But what moderates have now realized is that they have to take that resolution vote before they take the reconciliation vote. Yeah. And that's where they're really coming in here and trying to sort of do take some leverage, saying, hey, we're not going to vote for this. And this, as you mentioned, it's sort of been an increase in rhetoric all week. And now they've actually kind of laid their cards on the line, saying these are the nine of us, these are our names, we're not going to vote for it unless you do infrastructure. And this really puts Nancy Pelosi in a very tricky spot. She's really got to put her negotiating hat on here, trying to figure her way out of this. Otherwise, th this could be the end. This could be the end of both the infrastructure and the reconciliation packages. Boy, it's just always so close to falling apart here. Jack, Pelosi held a conference call with members of her caucus this week. She said, according to those on that call, I'm not freelancing here. This is the consensus of the caucus, suggesting it's not just the squad that wants to get the rec reconciliation deal done in the Senate before they move on hard infrastructure, that this is the majority. Is that accurate? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, there really wasn't much pushback when she first said this earlier in the summer that she was sticking with the progressive position and saying we're not moving infrastructure until we get everything else from the Senate, including the actual reconciliation bill. It is a little surprising, actually, to hear from nine moderates now saying, wait, 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 we, we don't like this plan that the speaker laid out uh, a matter of weeks ago or a couple months uh, that she said that. Uh, I, I think one thing to keep in mind, too, is out of all the Democratic moderates, nine is not really unity. Nine isn't that many moderates. I'm curious to see if they'll get more moderates on board. But looking at this letter, you know, you don't have Connor Lamb on the letter. You don't have Stephanie Murphy. Uh, You know, where's uh, Tom O'Halloran? I can think of a bunch of moderate members who sometimes buck uh, the leadership who didn't make this demand. So somebody's got to back down. If everybody does exactly what they said they're going to do, they can't really pass anything. Uh, And I'm just kind of curious why a relatively small number, enough to tank it, but a relatively small number of moderates said this if they weren't going to get a bunch of moderates to really dig in their heels. Which begs the question, Emily, and I don't know where you want to go with this, but I want to back you into a corner here. But which group is more influential, the moderates or the progressives? I think Jack kind of made a very interesting point there. The progressives have drawn this line in the sand, no infrastructure until reconciliation for quite some time. Mm -hmm. It's just this week that moderates and only nine moderates have come out. Then again, the the magic number is four. If you've got four, you're going to sink something. So So nine's more than enough to ruin this. Exactly. Is it just about being caught in the act then? So you know what? We took a stand, but... We didn't have, we couldn't consciously vote against child care and Medicare expansion. And well, we just voted yes for everything. Well, I I think what you need also, uh, when I talk to moderates, they're like, look, it's not that we're against reconciliation. A lot of the moderates, they like things like child care. They're even for things like an expansion of Medicare. I think one of the big concerns here, number one, the cost, the 3.5 trillion, it spooked Joe Manchin. It spooked some moderate Democrats in the House. Mm -hmm. Number two, timing. I mean, this is, as we just discussed last segment, it takes a while for money to go from the federal government to actual districts and moderates. These are the ones who are going to face the really tough midterms. They want to see that investment in their communities as soon as possible. And even a couple months make a difference. And number three, and I I wrote a little bit about this today for, for Bloomberg government, there's a messaging component here. Infrastructure for these moderates is such a clear win. It was bipartisan. It's infrastructure. Everyone loves infrastructure reconciliation, that's a little more difficult because Democrats are going alone. Republicans are like, cool, well, this is the basis for all of our attack ads. You already saw uh, the conservative American Action Network. They spent $5 million in moderate districts that are vulnerable in the midterms, already attacking them for this reconciliation plan that hasn't even been written yet. And so, yeah, for these moderates, it's much easier to say, hey, guys, look at what we did with infrastructure. But instead, that's kind of becoming combined with reconciliation. And it's going to be harder for them to really drive home that message on reconciliation because of the Republican attacks. So where does this go then, Jack? Is this the beginning of winding down the price tag? Maybe it ends up being $2 trillion. Everybody says, oh, look, we helped to influence the deal. It's more powerful. And even get mansion and cinema along the way. Well, I mean, one, somebody has to back down. As I said, if everybody holds their current position, they do not have a majority and they can't pass anything. Two, you know, you can imagine scenarios in which you, you could give them a win. 
you you maybe don't say, all right, moderates, we're, we're going to hold the vote on infrastructure and pass this and get that done before we do reconciliation. But if you vote for the resolution and just take that one step, uh, you make some sort of promise on, on something more fiscally moderate. You take the number down from three and a half trillion. We learned that, you know, Kirsten Cinema in the Senate has said she's not comfortable with that top line number. I think this is the time when leadership has to ask these moderates, what exactly do you want aside from digging in your heels? If there's anything you want, any promises we can make about how the rest of this process is going to go, let us know now and you can put out a press release saying, I got this promise in order to vote on this. Bloomberg Government's Emily Wilkins and Jack Fitzpatrick, our Reporters Roundtable. Thanks to both of you guys. Regulars on this program, time to get some tacos. Coming up, as the president settles into the woods of Maryland, we'll talk with Adam Belmar, optics expert on presidential vacations. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. President Biden has made his way from Delaware to Camp David, where he will spend this August weekend with a select group of White House officials and, of course, some family a favorite spot of his, according to White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. He likes Camp David. It's a place to be outside, uh, spend time with family uh, and certainly uh, has a beautiful, beautiful scenery there. Jen Psaki questioned over Joe Biden's summer schedule, specifically these plans, as most presidents are, even though we all know, well, time off is good for all of us. Enter the presidential vacation and the many things that can complicate those plans. We're joined by an expert on political optics who worked both as a network TV journalist covering the White House and later was an official working at the White House, Adam Belmar was Deputy Communications Director for President George W. Bush, and he's back with us today on Sound On. Adam, welcome back to Bloomberg Radio. It's good to be with you, Joe Matthew. Presidents run into criticism. You know this, if not worse in some cases, just about any time they go on vacation, even though, Adam, they technically never really leave the White House, do they? No, the president is certainly governing and responsible for every element of the job, no matter where he or she is. And as much as Americans appreciate the ability to see our presidents enjoying time with family and getting out of the White House, when things get rough, they want to believe the president is large and in charge. And that usually means not sitting on a beach or wearing a white shirt while playing golf. (laughs) Well, Camp David is the ultimate version, right, of the mobile White House that we hear about. Most people have no idea, though, Adam, what is up there. You do. You have actually spent time there with your former boss. What's the attraction at the top of the mountain? Bring us inside there. What kind of a weekend is Joe Biden going to have? Well, I think that Jen Psaki is correct. It is beautiful. It is scenic, and it is much cooler at the top of the Catoctin Mountains than it is down in the swamp in Washington, D.C. But this facility that we call Camp David is actually known as Naval Support Facility Thermont. And I can tell you that it looks like a camp. It has great low buildings and it's set in trees, but it is a fortress like none other. It has connectivity and the ability to support the president, heads of state, all kinds of staff, and bring the president face to face with every military leader or world leader that he might need to see. And so Aside from being away from the prying eyes, I think the president is going to enjoy the privacy that he needs to both take some time and really be able to touch everybody in the world that he needs to as they're dealing with this evacuation of U.S. personnel from Afghanistan. That's right. Apparently he will be uh, briefed on the withdrawal among 
other issues while he's there. How come we've never seen it, though, Adam? Was it, what is it about that? You can go online and look at almost every room in the White House, but no one has ever really seen through the gates of Camp David. That's right. We've seen it going back to May of 43, when folks like Prime Minister Winston Churchill was there uh, during World War II. And of course, what ultimately led to the Camp David Accords in the 78 era were Anwar Sadat and Israel Prime Minister Menachem Begin were there. It's improved a lot since then. There's a gym. There's a beautiful house of worship. There are common dining facilities. There are trails. There is everything that you could want to do, including a basketball court that President Obama put in. But it is ultimately incredibly secure, not just private. And that's a huge distinction between a place like, say, Mar-a-Lago, where our former President Trump escaped to repeatedly. He didn't have anywhere near the amount of privacy that a president would need to conduct foreign affairs and domestic politics, but it certainly was exclusive. This is exclusive to the nth degree and built as secure and hardened facility to support the presidency, Joe. Is there uh, a version of the Oval Office, even if it's not oval? And is it true about the golf carts? Each president gets a, a personalized golf cart drive around? Well, that is exactly true. And so do all of the dignitaries and staff who are on the property to support the president. I remember showing up and being handed the keys to my very own golf cart with my name emblazoned on a heart plastic sign. And they'd come around and charge them up. And I even ran very close to the president as we're going opposite directions before an interview one day in our golf carts. And he looked at me like I needed to slow down. (laughs) But I'll, I'll tell you what, the presidents come and go by a helicopter. But if you're a normal mortal human that's coming to be at Camp David, it very much looks like Jurassic Park when you get to the entrance. The Marines have the security mission at this facility, and it is run as a military facility by the Navy Seabees, and I've never seen a larger set of fences, doors, or screening procedure at any place I've been on the planet than at Camp David, and the president absolutely has an equivalent to the Oval Office. He's got a very large meeting room that Presidents Trump, Obama, Clinton, Bush, and I'm sure now Biden have either used all or will be using President Biden to convene with a war council, both in person and remotely. And the president's private office is spacious and very accommodating in the president's cabin and at the work cabin. This is a conversation you're not going to hear anywhere else as we spend time today with Adam Belmar on Bloomberg Sound On. Of course, Adam, your old boss spent a good deal of time in Crawford, Texas. This is a wonderful spot to come up in here and just kind of think about the budget. I mean, (laughs) he was just kidding. Of course, George W. Bush was known, Adam, for clearing brush, for riding his mountain bike, for driving his truck when he was in Crawford. And he got so many questions about it from the media. He took reporters on a tour of the property. August is always dry. I mean, unless there's a hurricane, uh, August is a dry month in Texas and it's always hot. It's never not been hot, and uh, you, you get you get some colors down here. Some of the leaves will, yeah, you do. It's nothing like New England, but you do get some colors. Of course, President Obama loved New England. Frequent trips to Martha's Vineyard. He always drew crowds at him uh, when he was walking around the island. But Obama was criticized by conservatives and and others because it felt different to people than a president who would go to quote-unquote home like George Bush in Crawford. 
No doubt. Uh, when you are investing your time and energy to create a place for a getaway for a president, you need to build things, dare I say, Joe Matthew, hard infrastructure. That kind of thing exists at a residence for a president and certainly at Camp David. There's no additional investment to support that mission to secure the commander-in-chief and all of the people that need to be there to keep that mission going even when you're away from the White House. That is certainly not the case when you are not going home and headed to a true vacation spot like we saw on Martha's Vineyard and even to Hawaii for President Obama. That's true. And, and of course, as we'll discuss in a moment, a lot of those trips were interrupted. Uh, but when you were in your old job, you're the deputy communications director. You've got to be ready for anything to happen. You go on vacation, things still happen. Uh, you need to have a venue, right, for the president to address the nation no matter where he or she is. I traveled with the President of the United States through 23 countries on the planet, and I can tell you everywhere we went, and most especially on vacations, such as they were at Crawford, or time spent at Camp David, we always had a contingency emergency statement plan, and that meant putting in the belly of the aircraft a podium, lights, the presidential seal, a molt box, and all the visual trappings of the presidency. That exists at, at Camp David as well for President Biden. And those elements are always needed. I can remember uh, World News overcoming events on a foreign trip with the president in the late 2000s. And with less than 20 minutes notice, we were told that the president would address the foreign press and the domestic press following on the trip. And if we hadn't been prepared, we would never have been able to pull it off. That's the kind of stuff that always looks presidential, even when it's just on the tarmac with the plane behind him, Joe. Because you've got the podium. You probably have some blue drape if you need to, right? You could go live from anywhere. Absolutely right. Adam, there's something we call the August curse in Washington, just when a president heads out of town, lawmakers on recess, and news happens. To your point, President Obama, specifically as I referred to, had had to cut several vacations short. It was the fiscal cliff in 2012, Hurricane Irene in 2011. A president never really goes on vacation. Hardly ever truly goes on vacation and sleeps so much less than we might ever suspect. The unbelievable consistency and persistence and stick to of all of our presidents straight back is remarkable. They are relentless human beings who are up against a challenging schedule, the likes of which even a broadcaster like Joe Matthew knows little about. <laughs> Thanks to our friend Adam Belmar, former senior Washington producer at ABC News, former White House deputy communications director, now runs a production house called the Advocacy Content Kitchen out of Virginia. So how about your August weekend? At least you won't be criticized for relaxing, so enjoy it. And be ready for anything next week. Remember what Adam said. And beware the August curse. We'll meet you back here Monday, no matter the news. And be sure to subscribe to the Sound On Podcast, the fastest hour in politics. Have fun this weekend. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.